Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be fun. Good evening. Welcome to a legendary British motorsport institution. For an evening with a legendary British motorsport institution. Uh, welcome to Brooklands, um, the home of British motorsport, of course, between 1907 and 1939. Uh, I'm absolutely over the moon to get the opportunity to talk to somebody who did what he did before I was even born. And I am... Sorry, Brian. Yeah, that's <laughs> I'm only 25. Um, it's fascinating to me to talk to these heroes of racing from the past when it was profoundly hazardous and these, um, and when they jumped into all sorts of different cars and raced pretty much anything, anywhere, every weekend. Brian has written a book, or co-written a book, um, which will be on sale at the end. Uh, and we have a discounted price and you will be able to get it signed by the great man as well. We'll talk for 40-45 minutes or so about some of the great things from his stellar career, and then we'll have a chance to get some questions from you guys. So think of something good that we don't cover. Um, he's got some epic tales locked away inside him. I think we might just tease a few more out tonight. Brian, great to see you. Have a seat. Thank you. I can see somebody just on the right-hand side over there. My last professional year, it was 1989, Laston Martin and Richard Williams, and I can see Richard wi grinning in a rather wicked fashion, so I'm expecting some questions. <laughs> and I went to one of the races in 1989, having just passed my driving test and got your autograph. <laughs> True story. Yeah. This is a marvellous piece of work. I mean, truly, truly wonderful. I know I have to say that tonight, but I think it's one of the greatest uh, driver biographies I've ever read. Are you very proud of it? Well, I am in a lot of ways, but I had some terrible arguments with my, my friend Jim Mullen, who did most of the writing. But I won't bore you with all that. We fell out at one point, just before it went to press, we weren't speaking for a month. But anyway, here it is, and it's, it's a rather different type of motor racing book uh, to the normal ones, and it's turned out very well. The Eric Burden Road publisher is here somewhere over there on the right. They took on the task of producing the book, and there, Mark Hughes, the editor, did a really fantastic job. Also, in obtaining all the photographs, there are over 300 photographs. And when, first of all, the whole project was being discussed, uh, the budget for photographs was three and a half thousand dollars, about you know just over two thousand pounds. And it, boy, you know, when you start trying to, to buy motor racing photographs from any of the uh, the big depositories and that, they're, they're an absolute fortune. So how? They managed to get all these great photographs, I do not know, but it's a very, very good book if only for the photographs. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, an extensive collection of pictures at home? Um, I have quite a lot of uh, pictures that I've, not so, not so much that I've collected, but you know, ones that I just happen to have. I never kept any real records or things of races, except those I won. <laughs> so my collection is fairly small. Right, <laughs> <laughs> rubbish. Um, the overwhelming thing, I think, about the book is it's, it's very modest, it's very honest. It was a, a particularly hazardous era. You've taken this ten-year period where you lost a lot of friends, didn't you? Well, you know, it was, and there's no question that uh, Jim, this was Jim Mullen's idea to concentrate on that period. I mean, I actually started racing in 1959. Uh, I made mop heads in Burnley, Lancashire, and I delivered them all over England at high speed in a Morris Thousand Travellers car. <laughs> and I put a supercharger on it made by Shorrocks in Blackburn, 
um, an anti-tramp bracket on the axle, and I, I delivered mops all over England, driving like a man who'd gone out of his head. <laughs> I thought I'd better get off, you know, off the road and onto the track, and I started racing at Ruffeth, near York, um, in about Easter of 1959. So that's, you know. Were you always a car enthusiast? Was it something that you were interested in as a child? Um, not, yes, I mean, I was like any normal boy who likes cars and toy cars and that kind of thing. But there were a couple of things that, uh, that got me going. One was at the motor show in London when I was about 17 that my father used to take me down to, used to go. And I went on one of those reaction testers. You know, they had a thing where you, the lights changed and you hit a button or something like that. Well, I did this, and of course the, the gentleman running this, he said to me, only one man faster today said Sterling Moss. <laughs> so I thought, hey. <laughs> and Sterling showed you around the Nürburgring, didn't he? You learned the Nürburgring with Sterling. So you, you learned the Nürburgring with Sterling, um, didn't you? Well, uh, the first time I went to the Nürburgring was to drive with Peter Sutcliffe from Huddersfield in his Duty 44. That was 1967. So I'd gone out there with a Vauxhall Cresta to try and learn my way around the Nürburgring. I was standing there, and this BMW 2002 arrived. Then this voice said, want to go around the track, old boy, hop in. And I'd never met Sterling before, and so I, my first time ever around the Nürburgring was in, a, in the back of a 2002 BMW driven by Sterling Moss. He clearly recognised you, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's what I reckon. We won't tell every tale in the book, but I'd like to sort of just touch on a few uh, themes. The danger thing is a, is a chapter by itself, the, the mind management and how you coped. And it was something that played on your mind, wasn't it, quite a lot? You used to say that you'd, <laughs> when you were racing at Spa, you wondered if you would get to pack your own bag in the hotel and, and that sort of thing. Well, obviously, you know, you'd have to be even more stupid than I was to think that it wasn't dangerous. Was it was dangerous. But I don't have a lot between the old years here. When I was 16, I was at Russell School in between Blackpool and Fleetwood, and the headmaster called me into his study. And he said, Redmond, I suggest you leave school. We can't teach you anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I left school at 16. So... Uh, Things continue. No, of course, you know, in that, in that sixth, when I really got going racing, it was mostly through a man called Charles Bridges, who owned Red Rose Motors in Chester, and he bought the ex-Graham Hill John Coombs lightweight E-type Jaguar, 4WPD, and I just got fastest time of day in a sprint in Southport at Woodvale in an XK120 Jaguar belonging to a friend of mine, Gordon Brown. And he said, I know, Charlie Bridges, I'll get you a drive in his E-Type. Well, the phone rings the next day, Tuesday, and they said, can you be at Alton Park at 8 o'clock on Thursday morning? So I arrive at Alton Park, it's a beautiful day. There's this beautiful E-Type that's been repainted in red. I think it was grey event, you know, originally. And uh, off I go in it. Well, I, you know, you know it's a great opportunity. So I'm trying as hard as I can. But anyway... It was all right, and I went about uh, three and a half seconds faster than Charlie Bridges, the owner. So he said, what are you doing on Saturday? This was two days away. I said, nothing. He said, come and race the E-type. And so that's how that all started. And we had a fantastic year. We were actually beaten once by a gentleman called uh, Ron Fry in a 250 LM Ferrari at Silverstone at the end of the year. And otherwise, it won something like 14 races. It was a fantastic one.
And then the next year, he bought a Lowell T70 Kananko. So we had another good year. But now we're doing a combination of club races, where it was obviously superior, uh, and internationals. So racing with McLaren and Chris Amon and uh, Graham Hill and Surtees. So, you know, that was a, a big thing. And at the end of that year, uh, at the beginning of 1967, Charlie Bridges' brother, David, the middle brother of three, said, do you want to turn professional? And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, it means I'll pay you 30 quid a week, guaranteed for a year, with a car and a mechanic. So that's how I turned professional. And, uh, and I was Formula 2, and we'd, he'd ordered a Brabham and two Cosworth FBA engines, which were the hot things at that time. Well, the week after I told my father I was leaving the family business for good, because he said, don't come back. <laughs> I got a call from David Bridges, who said, bit of bad news, Spud. He always called me Spud for some reason. He said, we can't get that Brabham or those Cosworth engines. They're not well known enough. But he had an earlier Brabham, and he had a Cosworth SCA 1000cc engine that they converted to 1500cc, and we went racing in Formula 2 with that, and now we're doing internationals. Halfway through the year, John Surtees came up, and he said, I'll sell you a new Lola T102 Cosworth FBA engines. So now we're racing in the big time with the big boys, still for 30 quid a week. And uh, in September of that year, David Piper rang, and he said, would you like to drive my 250-11 Ferrari with Richard Atwood at the Monlery 1,000 kilometers? And it poured with rain, it was dreadful. And uh, we won our class, so we finished fifth or sixth overall. But there, David York, the team manager for John Wire, came up to me and he said, would you like to drive with Jackie Hicks at the Kyle Army 9-hour race in November? And we won. We won the race. So I immediately signed a contract with John Wire for 1968 and for Cooper Car Company in Formula One, also for 1968. And I'm still racing the Lola T100 in Formula Two races. <laughs> and you, you don't, we don't need me, do we? <laughs> just, just go and sit out there and just press play on race. How do you remember all this? You did so much. I think it was all the time I spent at Ross's school. It's helped <laughs> You guys have amazing power of recall. I can't remember what I did two weeks Tuesday, but you remember the details of these cars and these events and these people. It's amazing. Well, I mean, these things just happen, you know, things that go well. Some of the things where I didn't do very well, I don't remember at all. <laughs> How terribly convenient. <laughs> um, we, we, the book is divided up into, uh, it's a mixture of circuits and, and sort of categories you race in. It's not a, a year-by-year chronology of your career. I think that works very well because they played such an important part in your life, these four or five key circuits and the four, four or five key disciplines that you raced in. Well, we're just going back to the danger area. Of course, as I was discussing, I was really, by 1968, I was pretty well into what might be termed the big time. You know, driving for Cooper in Formula One, John Wire in the GT40 with Golf and Jackie X, the, the Belgian wonder boy, or the young Brussels Sprout, as we used to call it. <laughs> My teammates in the other car that year were David Hobbs and uh, Paul Hawkins, the Australian journeyman, who we had a lot of fun with. You know, his favourite expression was, if he wanted to go to the gentleman's convenience, hey, matey, I've got to show Percy the porcelain. Always <laughs> always <laughs> <always> amusing. <laughs> and, but in that sort of, this relatively dangerous area, 
where things were really happening, especially now that we're in the big time. Of course, I got married to Marion in 1962, 1965, we had a son, James, and 1968, right at this time, our daughter Charlotte was born whilst I was racing at Daytona, the 24-hour race. And so traveling around Europe and being in the danger thing, there's no question that it preyed heavily you know, on my mind. And so when you said goodbye to your wife and two small children in those days, going off to race, especially at Spa, Frank, or the Nürburgring to some degree, and the Mon and Monza, there was definitely a feeling you know, that you might not see them again. And my wonderful wife, Marion, who's smiling away, or at least she's not smiling yet, I'm trying to get her to smile. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, she, she knew that as well. When Jim Mullen started writing this book, he said he was on about, you know, wives and how they didn't want you to race, but Marion never raised her voice at all about not racing. You know, only, I think, one time that she said something and it was agreed that I was going to carry on, you know, even though I retired at the end of 1970, because I thought, you know, the chances of living were not so... It wasn't that I was frightened of being killed. I wasn't, really. But anyway... Early in 68, we'd won the Brands Hatch six-hour races in mid-rain with Jackie Hicks, and in that race, um, a journalist came up to me just as I was getting into the car, and I was feeling very nervous, you know, about the rain and the car and everything, and he said, you hear about Jimmy Mate? I said, no, he said, kill the Tokanang. I said, thank you. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my teammate with the Cooper Car Company, Ludovico Scarfiotti, in January at... Uh, at the uh, South African Grand Prix and John Cooper were pumping oil out of this Maserati engine out of every orifice oil, oil was pouring and John said Brian he said please try and get it round for five laps we need the starting money <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did and they got the starting money Hicks and I won Brands Hatch then we won the, the uh, Belgian uh, thousand kilometres Spa thousand kilometres in pouring rain again and then I finished second to Jochen Rint at the Crystal Palace in the Lola T100 Formula 2 car. And then I finished third in the Spanish Grand Prix in the Cooper. Well, it sounds good, but what actually happened was I was last on the grid. I was 13th. Then next to me was my teammate, Ludovico Scalviati. So we go flogging round. Halfway through the race, we're ninth and tenth. Three quarters of the way through, we're fifth and sixth. So I think, ha! So I nipped past him and finished third. So we're on this convertible car going around the track afterwards, and on the right is Graham Hill, who won. In the middle is Denny Hume, who was second. I'm on the outside, and waving to the crowd like this. And I turned to my right, waved to the crowd on the right, and just as I did so, Graham turned to his left. And he saw me, and his jaw dropped, and his arm dropped, and he said, Christ almighty, don't tell me you were bloody third. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first, that was the first race after Jim had been killed, wasn't it? Yes, first race after Jim had been killed. So, so anyway, it, well, after that, though, my, uh, my teammate at the, should have been Scofiotti at the Belgian Grand Prix, but he had a commitment to do a hill climb at Rossfeld in Austria in a Porsche, so my new teammate was Lucien Bianchi. And on Sunday morning, Colin Ch Chapman said, I've got a message, can you talk to Mr. Chapman? So I go up to where he's arguing with somebody, they're shouting at each other, like shouting at And this gentleman went away and Colin turned to me and he goes, yes! 
And I said, uh, 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 Mr. Chapman, it's uh, uh, Brian Redman. Oh, my dear boy, he said. <laughs> How long is your contract with Cooper? I said, five more races. He said, come and talk to me when it's finished. Well, well, the eighth or ninth lap, I come whistling up to Lee Coombe at the top of the hill. Now today, of course, they go right down through the new complex, but in those days, you went left. And then you disappeared into the countryside through Berneville and Stavelove and miles of tremendously fast, you know, racing. And this is, uh, I, they, I tried to steer into the corner, then nothing happened. I was braking and nothing was happening on the brake. You know, at the last minute, I tried to spin it, you know, to go into the barrier backwards, and I couldn't turn it. The steering wouldn't turn. And then I had a really impressive accident. You know, the car rolled over the barrier, and as it rolled over the barrier, this arm got trapped between the car and the barrier, and I felt it break. And then all hell broke loose because I went right into a corner worker's post and three wheels came off the car. A corner worker was hit by one of the wheels and had a ruptured spleen and a heart attack. And the car caught fire. And I mean, the whole, it was like a scene from, from hell, you can't imagine. And I'm lying on the ground and there was a photographer, David Phipps, a very tall guy, and he's staring at me like this. You know, I'm shouting something about the steering braking, an impolite word. And no reply. And eventually they got me on the operating table at the University of Liège teaching hospital where Professor F. Orr Bann, the head of surgery, had been a Winston Churchill aide in World War II. So I knew he was experienced. <laughs> uh, and he got me on the table, he's dressed in green and green, and he said, Monsieur Edmund, it may not be possible to save the arm. I smiled. I said, thank you, Professor. He said, why are you smiling? I said, because I'm here. <laughs> so somehow, I don't know how he did it, because the arm had swollen, having been crushed, and the two bones in the forearm, the elders and radius had come out like this, and they were past each other, so somehow he dragged them back into line. But anyway, all through the summer, it didn't heal. I started racing again in South Africa in November of that year. I was having some pain in my arm. I just signed a contract with Porsche, the 1969, and as we were coming past Johannesburg, I rang Alex Blicknout, who has organized the Grand Prix and the nine-hour race, and I said, Alex, do you know any good bone men in Johannesburg? I am many, he said, I know the Christian Barnard of the bone world. And so I went to see David Vaughan a Friday afternoon. He took 20 x-rays. In England, they'd taken one x-ray in Burnley. And they took about 20 x-rays, and he said, Brian, man, sit down, I've got two bits of bad news for you. So I sat down and I said, what? He said, the first is, you don't have any union of either bone in the forearm. I said, what? I said, what's the second? He said, I'm going on holiday tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I have to be at Daytona in six weeks. So a 24-hour race. He said, I'll try an experiment that may work and it may not work. And he opened my arm up from my wrist to my elbow and he cleaned off the broken ends here and he took bone out of my hip and glued it in place and sewed it all up again. Didn't put it in plaster. He said, don't use it till you have to. And I got to Daytona, took the sling off, didn't tell anybody, drove with one hand, and racing the wheel with my knee like this at 200 miles an hour on the banking. And uh, there were five factory Porsches. It was the first year that Porsche had a chance to win the Manufacturer's World Championship. Well, anyway, about eight in the evening, the first of the factory 908s comes in the pits. The engine's going, the engineers examined it. 
We are finished. They will all break. <laughs> we were out by midnight. But then Joe Siffert and I went to Sebring to do a 24-hour test of a 12-hour race. Well, at 20 hours, the chassis broke. The engineers examined it. This is good. The race is only 12 hours. <laughs> Guess what happened in the race? If all Brian, the chassis broke. If you hadn't been a racing driver, I think you probably could have done stand-up. <laughs> Any of the men in the room feeling really inadequate right now? You describe these things as though it's a, a bump in the Tesco car park. Well, in some ways, I suppose it was. I mean, it was always a challenge. And uh, I always had... I got in real trouble with Marion a few years ago. I'm not saying I, say, I didn't thank her enough. I'm, tonight I'm thanking her in front of everybody. <laughs> She'll probably knock my block off to later on today. She should join us up here, actually, I think. Maybe, maybe next time, yeah. You, you put up with a lot, didn't you? You put up with a lot. It's my choice. No, very good. Um, the accident at Spa in 68, you were, um, you were not vindicated for some time after, were you? There was a, a photograph was taken showing the suspension collapsing. Yes. Um, on Thursday, Motoring News came out and said Redmond claimed the steering broke. And the editor, I think it was Michael T. at that time, got a, a, a call from John Cooper and said, I want a complete retraction. It was driver error. So, Mr. Teaser, I suggest you take a look at tomorrow's autosport. And there was a photograph taken head on by Peter Byrne having his first ever professional race photography. And it showed the bottom right front wishbone on the ground like this. Phew. <laughs> what was it about the old spa? It's the, it's the first circuit you deal with in the book, the magnificent old eight mile spa, where in the early 70s you're averaging 150, 160 miles an hour. It's yeah, unthinkable, I mean, just, I can't compute the numbers. You know, I've read that, uh, that Jackie Stewart always says that the Nürburgring was the most difficult challenge. Well, it was difficult, but it didn't have the mental challenge of the old spa, because you could learn, and I knew every inch of the old uh, Nürburgring, and it had a couple of fast, it only had real, one really quick straight, the main one on the, on the back of it, but the rest of it you could learn, and the speeds were, you weren't going 150, 170, 200 miles an hour. You were going 120, 130. It's a big difference, you know, when you have an accident. And incidentally, the first time I went to Spa, when I didn't actually race because my father had a stroke, I went back to England, but Peter Sutcliffe, the car owner of the GT40, he said, Brian, I want you to remember two things about the Nürburgring. And I said, yes, Peter. He said, the first is, this is my car. <laughs> and the second is, you've seen all these little bushes around the track, but of course in those days there were no barriers, it was all bushes and no curves, it was pretty narrow. And I said, yes, he said, just remember that underneath them is a hundred feet of trunk. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was that. So, Yes, uh, the first time at Spa in 1966 with Peter Sutcliffe in the GT40. You know, I'd been driving, racing a, a Lola G70 Can-Am car in England, all over England, with no problems. And I honestly thought I could race anywhere in the world well. On the first day, Friday, at Spa, I nearly retired from racing. I just couldn't believe the speed we were going at, you know, on this country road. It wasn't a track, it was a country road. And anyway... We finished fourth, and we had a very good, a very good result. 
and, and we went back the following year, and although we didn't have as good a result, we did, it was a very, very difficult race, because it as I, when I got in the car to take over from Peter, I was coming down to Stavolo at the far end of the track, and I could see the rain in it like a curtain, like this. And I slowed, probably to 100 miles an hour from 160 or 70. I went into this rain, and of course, instantly I couldn't see it. I couldn't reach the windscreen, which was misting up. And I put the wipers on, it was covered in bugs, and now the wiper, you can see like this. And in my mirror, I see headlights. So I pull over to the right side as far as I can, and whoa, comes Willy Mares in the Belgian Francochon Ferrari B4, yellow. And we're just going into a right-hander where the apex of the corner was a building, the corner of a building. And I'm about to change into fifth gear, from fourth to fifth. And I see this yellow thing going flashing across in front of me in the midst of having a huge accident. I missed the gear. I couldn't get into gear. I'm steering and counter-steering with one hand and trying to get into gear with the other. Anyway, the Ferrari is absolutely wrecked and I'm really shaken. I'm carrying on and picking speed up. And just as I'm getting going again, this is the back straight. The Dutch racing team, Porsche 906, came past me, immediately lost control, hit the banking, landed on its roof in the middle of the track, spinning around. I tell you, I'm, I, <laughs> I, you know, I nearly retired. But then uh, the uh, following year, 1968, with John Wire and Jackie Hicks. Jackie Hicks made a fantastic start at the start of the race in this GT40. At the end of the first lap, the first lap, he comes past the pits, he goes through a rouge, we can't hear him, he's disappeared, gone. Everybody thinks there's been an enormous accident, the whole field's held up. No, Vic Elford, who was a noted wet weather driver, comes past in second place in a Porsche 908, which would have been a better car in the rain than a GT40. He's 39 seconds behind. So we're leading by 39 seconds at the end of the first lap. So that was... The next year, 1969, Joe Sifford and I won in the long tail Porsche, the 908, and I set fastest lap. 1970, we won again in the 917K, but in practice, what dramas. Here's when Sifford goes out and Pedro Rodriguez in the other car. Well, Rodriguez comes in, da 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 da. Sifford's had a flat tire on the, on the straight. So he, he takes out a spare wheel, a jack, and a wheel brace in the 917. And they change the wheel on the side of the road while everybody's flashing the It comes in, they change all the wheels and tyres, it goes out, it happens again. The same thing happens, it comes back in, they put four fresh wheels and tyres on and say, Now, Herr Edmund, it is your turn. I say, what? There's something the matter. <laughs> so, anyway, go slowly, go slowly. Out I go. Three laps, I'm up to full speed. I go down the Master Straight, uh, where we're doing 210 miles an hour coming into the Master King. All okay, I come around Stavolo, I'm now on the return straight, and the corner at the end, the right under, is flat out and blind, followed by flat out and blind left. I turn into the right at about 180 miles an hour, the car went sideways. The left rear tire had come off the road. So I go whistling up the road, back the other way, and then I lose feeling of where I've got the wheels pointing in relation to the, the angle of the car. And I've read in a, in a book, that if you let go of the wheel, the Ackerman in the steering would straighten the car. And I let go of the wheel and it straightened. <laughs> 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 I got back into the pit and Joe Sivert fell on the floor laughing. 
What's the matter with you? He said, Brian, you're the color of your overalls. <laughs> we won the race. It was the fastest road race ever run with an average speed, including the pit stops, of 149 point something miles an hour. And the fastest lap, which was set by Pedro Rodriguez, was an average of just over 160. An average of 160. Including That's the last horse hairpin. Yes, including bottom gear hairpin. Uh, no rouge. I mean, everybody makes such a big deal about no rouge these days, don't they? Well, it, it was difficult, but it wasn't the most difficult. was the Master King coming in at 214 miles an hour. It was taken at about 180. And so that's why, to me, Spa was just more difficult, you know, than any other track, because of the high speed of those borders. In 1972, we went with the Ferrari, the 312PV, and uh, my co-driver was Arturo Manzario. They didn't like Spa, and we lost a lot of time. But anyway, towards the end of the race, I'm leading, and Ronnie Peterson is catching me, but not too fast, but he's closing, and I'm trying to calculate you know, if I have to go a bit faster. <laughs> and we come into Lake Coombe, this left-hand corner at the top of the hill, uh, where I'd had the accident, and always going into Lake Coombe, I always took a different line to the normal line to give myself more room if something went wrong. And so, also, as I came in, I saw an unusual movement in the crowd. So umbrellas were going up and down, and that usually means that there's either an accident around the corner that's not been flagged, which happens sometimes, or it's rained, you know, and it wasn't raining on the windshield, the road looked okay, but as I started braking a little bit earlier than normal, um, it was wet, and I just got round the corner, thanks to this different lot, and poor old Ronnie never made it. <laughs> <laughs> Rodriguez and Sifford were, were killed within months of each other in that terrible 1971. What were they like? What were they like? I mean, we know what they were like in the car. What were they like out of the car? Well, they were both, I mean, they were both fantastic people. Uh, I first drove with Pedro at uh, Montlhery, 1000Ks, in 1969, um, in the Matra. And after the race, he said, Brian, he said, it, it is a great pleasure to drive with a co-driver who is almost as fast as I am. Mind games, even then. Yeah. Well, but they were both fantastic. I mean, Siffert was a great businessman. He was always working on some deal, you know, and he was incredibly... What happened really was that at Daytona, which I mentioned earlier, I you know, was recovering from this broken arm, I was driving with Vic Alford. And after the race, Rico Steinemann, the team manager, said to me, Brian, he said, would you like to be number one in your own car, meaning choose your co-driver, or would you go as number two to Sifford? And I knew that if I went as number two to Sifford, that I would get none of the plaudits. It would always be Sifford, and none of the photographs or anything. But I also thought we'd win more races. And that's what happened. Sifford and I won five out of the ten races and won the world championship for Porsche uh, for the first time in 1969. Wow. Yeah, round of applause. I hesitate to mention this because Marion doesn't like it much, but at Spa here in 1970, after winning in 917, we go to the incredibly boring prize giving in Spa at the town hall. 
and they drone on and on, thanking each other in Flemish and God knows what. And we got James there, our son, who was uh, five then. And uh, at about 10 o'clock it came to an end, and Suffolk said to me, Brian, we go and have a drink with the mechanics. I said, yes. So I say to Marion, we're just going to have a drink with the mechanics, darling. So I get a rather frosty look. What time will we be back? I said, uh, midnight. But I didn't know that the mechanics were nearly 30 miles away. <laughs> so after singing and shouting all night long, we arrived back at the hotel at 4 a.m. Siffert's doing spin turns in his 911 in the gravel forecourt. We couldn't walk up the stairs, we had to crawl. My door was locked. <laughs> the hotel manager had to be called for. And when I was let in, uh, I wasn't feeling too good, and I was sitting on the convenience, and uh, she's standing there with a glass of water, you know, so I said, please, darling, please, you know, just... <laughs> <laughs> so I made another terrible error of judgment and went out of the room, stark naked and dripping in water, to tell the about this, and the door was immediately shut and locked. <laughs> so... I'm only mentioning this because 19 years later, in 1989, we go with Aston Martin, Richard Williams. And uh, we had another slight disagreement about certain things, and I was locked out of the room again. <laughs> and one of the mechanics went up a drain pipe and got on the balcony, but even he couldn't make much impression. And my briefcase, complete with all my money, travel tickets and passports, was flung out of the window. <laughs> I arrived at the forecourt. And anyway, the next morning, we weren't feeling terribly good, but anyway, we came staggering out of the hotel, and this voice comes from an upper room, a balcony, it's Richard William. Hello, Brown. Hello, Richard. Have you lost something? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he had the uh, briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> the Nevergreen. So that, that's Spar dealt with. Um, how did you learn? a 14-mile track with 157 corners. How do you... You can't let it in one go, can you? Well, not really, no. It was a problem for me the first time I actually raced there in 1968 with Jackie X in the John Wyatt Golf GT40. And I'd never raced there, and I'd done a few laps. And so on race morning, I said to John, I said, John, I think, you know, I don't think I should drive with Jackie because I don't know the track. And he said, ah, oh, very well, Redmond. He said, you can drive with Hobbs and we'll put Hawkins with X. Anyway, after the race, he came up to me and said, Redmond, that's the last time I'm taking your advice. And I said, yeah. He said, yes, if you'd driven with X, we might have won the race. <laughs> so I picked it up. Well, I mean, what I did basically was learn the dangerous corners, whether they were fast or slow, and what came after them. You know, that's, that's how I'd always start off in learning a track, learn the danger bits, learn, then learn the, the bits where there was a blind corner that was followed by a fast section. And so anyway. And you're learning as you go. You're learning in practice in the race car, aren't you? Yes. You're not, you're not watching it on YouTube before you go, are you? <laughs> Back then, no. it's all playing well, the again. I was lucky enough to win up the Nürburgring three, three times and at uh, Spa five times. So, but I still think, and, and will never change, that Spa was more difficult because of the speed. It didn't have anything like the corners, but it was the sheer speed of those high-speed corners. So. The Nürburgring still exists, and the Nordschleife is still there, and you can still pay to go around. It's a sort of place that escaped the, 
health and safety police, isn't it? It's almost like they've not noticed yet. Well, I don't think in Germany the health and safety police are very strong. <laughs> no, they don't care. I mean, in 69, with Seppert in the 908, on Saturday, I said to him, could we drive around the track together? Well, of course, it's open to the public. You know, as soon as you stop practicing, the race cars stop, the public goes on. So out we go. Well, we keep seeing cars crashed all over the place. And we, we arrive after the Fox Run. You go downhill like this, and you go up, and you go through a fairly quick right-hander, then up again to a tight, blind left-hander like this, then immediately right and onto a short straight. Well, on that immediately, that tight left and, and right, about 15, 20 people standing watching. They'd all park the cars. They're standing on the hedge with no barrier. They're all in the lader hose, you know? So we wonder what they're doing. So we parked and joined them. So we found out fairly quickly. We hear this tremendous wailing of tyres and brakes as this Volkswagen Beetle comes <laughs> hurtling through the fence and down the hill. <laughs> and they're all standing there laughing. Oh, 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 oh! <laughs> oh, it was interesting. <laughs> um, the Targa Florio is next to, to get the, the treatment in the book. I'm crazy. I mean, public roads and, and how many miles? Four, uh, 40, 44 40. miles to one lap. Um, the you, good and bad memories of the Targa. You won it in 1970, but in a year later, you had a huge accident, didn't you, that could have been the end, really? Well, of course, as mentioned earlier, I'd made this stupid retirement to South Africa at the end of 1970, but only for four months. But when I came back to England in April of 1971, I didn't have a drive. So when I turned down the Ferrari Formula One drive in 1968, Derek Bell took my place, you know, in that team. And when I retired at the end of 1970, Derek took my place in the John Wyatt team. But he'd never done the Targa, and John rang and said, Brian, would you do the Targa? Well, to me, it looked like a great opportunity to come back into the big time. I was driving a Formula 5000 for Sid Taylor and the Clarin M18. And so off I go. Well, Sifford crashed the car the night before the race and it's repaired. It was well damaged, but anyway, it's repaired for the race. So we go down to the start and Wyatt said, Redmond, I'd like you to start the race, which I normally never did. Sifford always started. I said, what for? He said, I don't want Rodriguez and Sifford knocking each other off. You know, they were always very a bagging match. So I started and right away the handling wasn't normal, you know. And I got 20 miles around the 44-mile track and turned into a corner that was relatively straightforward. And oh, you know, just before the start, one of the German engineers had come to me. He says, Herr Edmund, if you must have the accident, do not crash on the right side. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I hit a mile marker post right in the fuel tank on the right side. And it exploded. And uh, I was extraordinarily lucky to get out because I shut my eyes held my breath and I hit the safety belt, release, and jumped out and then fell over and you know, so on. But I was blinded by the uh, fire and uh, there, were no, there was no help for 45 minutes. So the spectators were fanning me with magazines and then I was carted off to nobody knew where. They didn't know where I was. I was in some, you know, some not very great hospital kind of thing. There were no doctors. All the nurses were patients' families, you know. And they kept coming in, I was bandaged from head to foot, like the invisible man. And I'm going to tell this story because if I don't, Alan de Cadenet will. Well, a couple of hours later, Alan de Cadenet's broken, brought in, his lower, 
212 had broken suspension on the main straight, which was four miles long. So he'd be going certainly 160. And they had a, a big crash, and it caught fire, and he was knocked out. But a spectator had dragged him out of the car, and it saved his life, really. Anyway, he's brought in, he's got one eye with can't see but otherwise he was all right. Well, about six in the evening, I had an urgent call of nature. I had to go, and my hands were bandaged. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, so you know that was really a, a, another major setback. And so here I'm having not a very good year in five thousand, and I've had this bad accident on the target flow. It took a few weeks to recover, and um, then at the end of the year, Sid Taylor borrowed a BRM Canam car from BRM. And we took it to Imola, and the car was designed by Tony Southgate. All his cars were good in the rain. They had relatively soft suspension, and it rained pretty hard. And I lapped the field, and the field included a factory Ferrari. And Mauro Fugheri, engineer Fugheri, came up to me and said, Brian, what are you doing next year? <laughs> so now I was with Ferrari, so I'm back in the big time again for two years. So. Fantastic. Um, Le Mans. Is a, you know, yeah. Le Mans, your sort of your bogey circuit, if you like. You never won there. You led it many times. Why do you think that was? I don't really know. You know, I think some circuits are lucky and some aren't lucky. But Le Mans is really the only one of all those big thousand-kilometer races in the target that really everybody in the world knows about. The only one that really matters when it comes down to it. And so we never won it. I mean, led many times in nineteen. 69, we could have had a 917 Porsche, but it was very new, and Sifford and I felt that it was better to go with a proven 908, where we'd already won four races in the 908, but we had a special long tail spider, and uh, we were leading about eight, 8 in the evening when the gearbox overheated, the pipe melted because it wasn't getting any air, so it had never had any proper long distance testing in that long tail form. 1970, where a lot of rain, it was terrible, we were leading by five laps <laughs> in the 917. Well, Jackie X in the factory Ferrari 512 is in second place and he catches Joe Siffert. Now they're racing. Oh, the first thing that happens is X goes off the track and the corner worker was killed in the Ferrari, in the Ferrari. And Siffert comes past the pits and there were three slower cars that come through with chicane and they were all having their own little battle here like this, and it comes right across to the inside, by the pit wall, and right in front of the Porsche pit, Mr. Gear. <laughs> well, those 917 engines, they go to 8,200 RPM for 40 hours. If you went once over 8,200, once to 8,400, it broke, with all gear broke. So that was that, that was 1970. So, 72 with Ferrari, we didn't go. Because they weren't, you know, it's basically a Formula One car. In 73 we went, and um, we were on the front row. Mazzario and Carlos Pacci in one car, Jackie X and I in the other. And before the race, Jackie came to his rear and he said, I wish you to start the race. I do not want to battle with Mazzario. So I started, I said, okay, there are eight prototypes in the race. At the end of the first or second lap, I'll be in eighth place. Well, one in the morning, we're leading. Then a fuel tank got a leak, we lost some time. Then an exhaust pipe broke up near the engine and, couldn't, and nothing could be done. So now that was leaking. 
and uh, with about only about 40 minutes to go, uh, the engine broke. We were in second place at that time. And I was out of the car, Jackie came in the trailer, finished, and we got a standing ovation from the crowd and as the mechanics pushed the car away. So that was another, another. And we led in 1978 in the Porsche 935, John Fitzpatrick. We were driving for a, uh, an American, Dick Barber, and Dick Barber, when I first drove for him earlier in the year, he said, Brian, never touch the boost. The boost was 1.2 bar, but you have a controllable thing on the dashboard. So you can turn it up, get another 80 horsepower. Well, I, I couldn't understand why I'm always qualifying eighth, you know, running okay in the race. So I asked Rolf Stommelen, a young German who was an expert on the 935. I said, Rolf, can I ask you a question? Yeah, Brian, what is it you're wearing? I said, do you ever touch the boost in qualifying? Hey, Brian, he says, do I ever touch the boost? I turn it as far as it will go. <laughs> so at six in the morning, it's raining, it's horrible. Uh, Dick Barber had taken, got out in the car. I waited to watch him go by, came in the pits waving. I go around to the driver's window. He says, Brian, you guys are paid to drive in conditions like this. Get back in. <laughs> so, 79, I got a call from Porsche. Now, Edmund, you would like to do Le Mans with Jackie X in the 936. So, off I go again, thinking, another great chance. Well, my first lap in the race, I come through the chicane by the pit. The car didn't feel right. You know, in a 24-hour race, I should have gone straight into the pit, which in those days were immediately after the chicane. Not like today, where it's miles back. So I didn't go in, and of course I turned into the Dunlop curve at 180 miles an hour, and spun as the left rear tire left rear tire had gone, that's what I felt coming out of the chicane. So I go spinning around the Dunlop curve. I hear the bodywork flying off, the, the barriers flushing by, and suddenly the barriers coming at me, and I just went, mm, like this, and missed it. Then we carried the comprehensive toolkit in the car, and I stopped before the Mons sounded straight, and I cut the tire off the rim, uh, and then drove it on the, on the rim, you know, back to the pit, <laughs> going maybe 10 miles an hour, and I thought, that's it, we're finished. Anyway, it was going again. Two in the morning, we're now in about 17th place and climbing, rain is pouring. I'm up in the, above the pits with my oldest friend in the world, Ian Green, and suddenly, Jackie Hicks is stopped on the Malsan. Aha. Well, 10 minutes later, 15, 20 minutes later, Jackie Hicks is going again. Well, the fuel pump drive belt had broken and we carried a spare in the toolkit and he fitted it. Now it's going again. Five minutes later, Jackie X is stopped again. It was stopped on the Balsang corner. So now I think this is it. We're out. So, half an hour later, Jackie X is going again. <laughs> so Norbert Singer, the team manager, looks up, waves. I shake hands with my friend Ingrid. I think this is it. I'm finished. So down I go, I get in. I drive like a maniac. Burn the brain. 200 miles an hour. 45 minutes, which is about half an hour before it was due in for fuel, I get a pit signal. Pit. I go in the pits. Norbert Singer leans over, he says, Brian, he said, you can get out of the car. We were disqualified one hour ago. Cannon had taken Jackie Hicks, a nice beef sandwich, and the marshals had seen it. Um, the, the new drive belt was uh, not approved, and in the papers the next morning, Porsche cheating. Yeah. Uh, so that was 19, uh, 
1978, and I went again with Jaguar, hopeless Jaguar effort from America with Group 44. It was a waste of time. And my last time was 89 with Richard Williams and Aston Martin. And we actually had a, had a great time. And I, I, it was very difficult to get a clean gear change from second to third early in the race. And I said to Marion, I said, book dinner at about nine o'clock. It's been a break. <laughs> well, you know, 23 hours later, it's still running. It's still the same. I'd had a minor uh, alarm on Sunday morning. I'm going down the Mulsan Street. There's no, I'm doing about 215. There's no chicanes. I'm exercising my hands, looking at the gauges. Then there's a bang, and I go, whoa, towards the barrier. Anyway, didn't hit it, came in. Something had broken in the rear suspension when it was repaired. And off we go. And so with an hour and a quarter or so to go, uh, Richard said, would you like to do the last hour? Well, we were, I think we're in 11th place. And we weren't going to go any higher or any lower. So off I'm, I'm driving around. And, the car would slide very easily at our marge, the 90-degree right-hander. So for a few laps, it's in the second gear, I come whistling, and turn, and then, So I did this for two or three laps, and then I didn't do it again. And suddenly, from a group of British enthusiasts on the right, came a handwritten sign, give us some oppo. <laughs> next lap, the next lap, now, fastest lap. <laughs> and then the third and final time, crumpets and tea with the Queen. <laughs> so we had, a, we had a, great, uh, a great time. It was, in many ways, a great year. The car didn't work out to be quite as fast as we'd hoped it would be, but we had great reliability. I think I finished every race. I had two, uh, well, they weren't so funny, really, but they were one. At the Nürburgring, on the new circuit, I'd never been, and for some reason I was late out for practice, for qualifying. And when I went out, I tagged on to a 962 driven by a German who I knew, knew the track. And we come up to this fairly quick chicane, and suddenly the back of his car came at me, and I had, to, I had to come off the power. And as I did, the car spun, I'd lost all the downforce. So I go spinning through the chicane, and now I'm going backwards at about 120. And I go over a curb, and the barrier's there, and I'm sort of like this, you know, looking at the barrier, I'm about two feet from it. I kept easing it away like that, and then I went like this, and, went, and I carried on. Now Richard comes on the radio. Well done, Brian. And then there's a silence. I thought I couldn't say anything. And he said, bet you can't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and then in practice, the car crashed on the, on the pace lap pretty well in practice. So we all come in the pits. And Richard comes on the radio. Turn it off, Brian. So I turn it on. Ten or fifteen minutes later, fire it up, Brian. So I start it. Richard? Yes, Brian. I said, there's vibration in the engine that wasn't here fifteen minutes ago. I'll give it a couple of laps. <laughs> well, on that first lap, I got to about 6,000 RPM, the biggest bang I've ever heard. <laughs> Cut the engine in half. The crankshaft had broken. That was the, uh, the vibration. But we actually had a... We had a very nice year, and it was a fun year, which, you know, to me was always important in my racing. Whoever I raced for, I wanted it to be a, you know, a fun experience. Had you stopped bothering by that point about never having won it? It didn't bug you at that late well, stage? Well, I mean, you can't spend your life worrying about anything, can you? Uh, you know, too, too much. Otherwise, it destroys your life, doesn't it, if you, if you worry all the time about certain things. So, no... I put, I've done the classic a couple of times, which I haven't enjoyed much. 
Last year at Classic, I was driving a D-Type Jaguar. Well, it was a bit of a late deal, and my license, my FIA license from America, was late coming. So they sent me a fax with a photocopy. I knew there'd be trouble. I go in to register, and I'd got the fax two days before. Herr Edmund, where is your license? I said, here. This is not good. We need the hard copy. I said, I don't have the hard copy. It's in America. You cannot use this. I said, but look, the date is two days ago. This does not matter. You might have had your license taken away in the last two days. So <laughs> <laughs> I got in the D-type. I came in after my first session. I can't get into the garage area. Stop. Mr. Edmund, you have committed an infraction. You must see the chief steward. So I start to get out of the car. You must take the car. So I go 20 minutes through the crowd again. I get to race control. You can't come in. <laughs> so another hour, I go back on foot. I wait another hour. I go up to the chief steward. He said, Mr. Evan, you have committed a serious infraction. I said, well, I've been racing 56 years. I said, I've never actually been before a chief steward. What have I done? You did not show the pit marshal your wristband. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't, officialdom in your, in your pomp wasn't like that, was it? It was much more relaxed and easygoing. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> well, With a few exceptions, probably. Yes, well, it was funny, in 1972, I was racing a Chevron Formula 5000 at Riverside Raceway in America. And I, I, I just caught Sam Posey, who was leading in the 30s. And I was looking to pass him. But suddenly, the back of his car came at me like this. And I swerved to miss him. We're going 170 miles an hour. I go, what? And miss him. And I win the race. Well, they put a protest in. I'd overtaken under a yellow flag, which I'd never seen because my view was blocked by sound. So the chief uh, steward comes up to me. And in a strong Lancashire accent, he says, now then, Brian, lad, I'm Sam Smith from Accrington. Accrington was seven miles from Burnley. And he said, there's one Lancashire lad to another. Did you see yellow flag or not? I said, no, I didn't. He said, right, lad, you're the winner. <laughs> I got fined $100. <laughs> um, three times you won the US Formula 5000 title. Do you have equally as fond memories of the big single-seaters in the States as you do with factory prototypes and sports cars? Well, actually, my memories of Formula 5000 in America are, are my best racing memories because the car was fantastic, prepared by Jim Hall Chaparral cars, and we, we, it, was a, it was a brilliant, brilliant time. In the four years when the Chevrolet 5-litre racing engine wasn't so reliable, we had one engine failure in four years, and that was in practice. And the main reason, really, to be honest, <laughs> that I beat Mario Andretti for two years to the championship was my reliability, you know, because he was, Mario was always looking for more power, and he had a bit more power, but he didn't have the reliability. And so we had a, we had a really fantastic time, which of course finished. Now at the end of 1976, which was the third, actually we should have won the championship the first year with Chaparral when Jody Schechter won it, uh, but I missed two races due to driving for Ferrari in Europe. I actually won five races and Jody won four, but he did two more races and got more points. Well, that was that. At the end of 76, the Sports Car Club of America changed the rules because Can-Am cars had bigger crowds. It was the promoters 
They wanted bigger crowds, of course, as they always do. And so they made us put bodywork on these open-wheel single-seaters. And I go to Sandrabeet in Canada for the first race of the new year, and it's the first time I've seen the car. But I know it's prepared at Chaparral, it's tested by Franz Weiss, who was a head mechanic, who built the engines and tested the cars. And I go out in the car 15, 20 minutes, I come in, and it was good. And Jim said, how is it? I said, it's good. He said, what do you want? You know, I said, oh, I don't know. I said, take a quarter of an inch off the front wing, lower it by a quarter of an inch, which he did. And on the next lap, at 170 miles an hour, it took off, went about 40 feet in the air, turned over and came down. And that broke my neck, C1, smashed his shoulder, split my breastbone, broke my ribs, uh, and my heart stopped. Uh, and the ambulance blew a tire on the way to hospital. Uh, when I arrived from England the next morning, the headline in the front page of the Montreal paper showed the ambulance uh, with the two guys working on the wheel, the doors were open, and me in the back not looking too good. And it's a red man, a more red man is dead. Uh, that was 1977. It took about eight or nine months to, uh, to recover from that. I had to sell my Porsche 917 that I paid £8,000 for. What? <laughs> you paid eight grand for a 917. What are they fetching now? They say that to a car like that, this was the Steve McQueen film car. Now in the race, Joe Siffert and I had driven the John Wire Golf car number 20, and the Steve McQueen film car had been bought by Porsche, and it replicated our race car. So it was in Gulf colours and number 20. Wow. It's worth about, they say that it's worth about $20 million to them. That's what they made it for. It was a phenomenal thing. Um, I, I still can't get my head around how something so beautiful um, could also be so devastatingly effective. Um, but it wasn't always like that, was it? It was no, it's totally they built it in a huge hurry to comply with the change in the regulations. The regulations at that time were that if you, it was for three litres only, so that's why the 908s were three litres, but the FIA had written that if you built 50 production race cars, you could have five litres. And they reduced that from 50 to 25, and that's when Porsche built 25 917s. I mean, it was a heroic effort. It yeah. was a huge effort. It was all Ferdinand Pierre. It was all his But the eight or nine factory drivers refused to race it at the Nürburgring, didn't they, when it, when it made its debut? Well, the, the, there were ten factory drivers at that time, and nobody wanted to drive it at the Nürburgring, but it wasn't just because of the, you know, the danger or anything else. It was because it was slow around the Nürburgring. We knew it wouldn't be. And David Piper and Frank Gardner drove it. And I think they finished fifth or sixth, but they were laps behind, you know, miles behind. In March of 1969, I got a call from Porsche. Herr Edmund, you will come to Weissach and test the new 917. I thought, huh, why do they want me when I'm in Cone, Lancashire, and they've got nine, you know, six German heroes within reach of Stuttgart, ready to die for the fatherland? I said, I'll call you back in one hour. And I write Joe Siffer in Fremont in Switzerland. And it's Seppi, have you tested the new 917 yet? There's a long silence. Uh, no, no, Brianne, he said, we let the others find out what breaks first. <laughs> so I couldn't go. But then the car was sorted fairly simply. John Horseman tweaked the arrow, and then it just became absolutely mega. 
Yes, I think the Porsche engineers knew what the problem was. It was the rear deck. There was nothing, no downforce on it. And they knew that because they'd already made the Can-Am Spider, which I'll be driving in a few weeks at Goodwood in the hill line. And they knew that it was an aerodynamic problem, but Ferdinand Pierre wouldn't let them change one thing that would lose, you know, one mile an hour on the Monsanto straight. They couldn't do it, weren't allowed to do it. So for them, I think the John Horseman finding that this was the problem, what actually happened was uh, the test was at the Ostrike ring, and the drivers were Kurt Ahrens and myself, and John Wire and uh, his team were going to take over the running of the official Porsche team for 1970. So Kurt and I keep going out in this 917 terrible. And they changed this and that, and nothing made any difference. And on the second day, John Horseman said, look at the nose and look at the tail on the nose. It was covered in bugs, and the tail, there was nothing to write at the very tip of the tail. There were a few bugs. So they borrowed tools from the Porsche truck. This was an official Porsche test. And they cut the entire rear body up and made it like a box, looked like a pickup truck. And I was first out in it the next morning, and where we'd been doing all the previous day, we'd been doing one or two laps at a time, you know, testing changes, nothing made any difference. And now I stayed out for seven laps. And when I came in, I said, now we have a race car. Five seconds a lap, faster. <laughs> and then it became totally dominant, of course, in 1970 and 71. I still never really cared for it. It was a great car to drive. What I didn't like was the fact that if you hit something hard enough, it broke in half, right across the cockpit. It was all kept very quiet, that. But John Wolfe was killed on the first lap at Le Mans in 1969. Well, Digby Markland, his co-driver from Southport, spun in a straight line in practice, going over the Monson Hump. And he was probably doing 200. And he spun. He goes all the way down to the Monson Corner without hitting anything. Drove it back to the pits, got out, went up to John. He said, thank you very much, John. He said, I've now retired from motor racing. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard Atwood and Rick Elford and myself all said to John, John, don't do the stuff. Let Herbert Lingy start. He's a test driver. No, no, it's my car and I'm starting. And he was killed on the first lap. Of course, it might have helped if he'd fastened the seatbelts, but he didn't. You know, I think, I think that year was the last time of the running Le Mans start. Um, so it broke in half, as did David Piper's. If you saw photographs of David Piper's car after the Le Mans filming crash, you wouldn't believe it. You'd say nobody could live through that today. He lost a leg. You know, but that's what I didn't like about them. It kept me awake at night <laughs> before Spa, Bonza, and, uh, and Le Mans. And of course, the 9083, which was built in 1970, only for the Nürburgring and the Targa Florian. So we go to the Christmas party in 1969 to celebrate Porsche winning the championship for the first time. The engineer said, I don't know, you would like to seize a new 9083? So I go into this dark corner, there's no front body on it. I get in it, and I see my feet are in front of the front wheels. There's nothing there. There's a little oil cooler about that side. So I get out, and even the engineers looked a bit sheepish. And I said, what do you think of the new 9083? I said, well, I said, I think it's a very good car for Douglas Bader. <laughs> but the car, the car was good to you. You won a lot of races in the Including the target. We won the target. It was built only, we, we should have won up Nürburgring, it ran short of oil. 
And of course, Ferdinand Pieck was running a backdoor factory team through his mother, Porsche Austria. John Wyatt never knew about this pseudo factory team. And after we'd broken down, we were out oil, uh, Vic Alford and Kurt Ahrens were in this Porsche Salzburg 983. And uh, about 10 years ago, I saw Faust, uh, the former mechanic for Porsche Salzburg and head of the museum. And we were running a 9083 at Sebring, prior to going to Seika in August. And I said, Klaus, you remember the Nürburgring in 1970 when we had such a nice lead and we ran out of oil and, Klaus, and uh, Vic and Kurt won the race? And he said, yeah, Brian, he said, in Porsche Salzburg, we know about this problem. We have bigger oil tanks. <laughs> <laughs> so. Wow. Um, questions in a moment, but... God only knows. Better be quick, because Richard Williams is going to fall asleep. <laughs> um, let's get back to America. Daytona was another circuit you won three times. Um, the whole culture of American racing was very different, wasn't it? Well, it was, and certainly in terms of the crowds, even today at, Road, you know, at Sebring especially, and at Daytona, it's much more of a party kind of atmosphere. They don't know or care really much about the car. It's an excuse to have a party. That's what, what it mostly is. Mm. What's the circuit like at Daytona? Daytona's okay. Um, it's, you know, a typical of these oval circuits made into a road circuit. They're okay, they're not great. And uh, I mentioned to one of Richard's mechanics who's sitting over there earlier that in uh, November last year I drove the AMR1 at Daytona in a historic race. I was actually just driving to the practice. And on the fourth lap, and screwed my courage up, and I'm flat out in NASCAR 3, which is 30 degree banking, at about 190 miles an hour on the right rear suspension. Broke, the bolt broke in the right rear suspension. But I was lucky that the clever design of the AMR1, it had very little droop in the rear suspension, so it didn't go very far. If it had been a normal car, I'd probably had an enormous accident. But as it was, it just gave a bit of a wiggle, and it was all right. Wow. <laughs> Let's have some questions. Steve is going to be out there with a microphone. Hands up if anyone's got a question. You're not going to get a short answer to whatever you ask. <laughs> I've decided to go out and have some breakfast while Brian uh, yes. finishes off. Any questions? Somebody over there. Yeah. Oh, you're going to earn your money tonight, Steve. The reason for the mic is that in fact he can't hear Hello, Brian. <clears throat> Ferrari Formula 2 cars, South Circuit, Lugo Grand. What happened to that Ferrari Brian? Ferrari Drive, um, 1968, I uh, got a call from Ferrari to come and test Formula 2 at uh, Modena, so I go, lunchtime, engineer for Gary says to me, Brian, under the trees there, in the raincoat, this is Singapore Ferrari, because what he's really saying is go faster. Um, I go, I do the south circuit of the Nürburgring, which I've never done, it's about four and a half, five miles round. But it's the same kind of thing, downhills and trees and everything. And in, in qualifying, Jackie Hicks was the team leader. Um, I'd come in about 15 minutes from the end of qualifying on Saturday. And for Gary said, Brian, why you stop? I said, I've stopped because I've gone as fast as I can. He said, Brian, go out and try harder. You're in 10th place. So I go out, I drive like a maniac. And I go a tenth of a second quicker. And I'd been in fourth place all along. Which, considering I didn't know the track, you know, really was all right. So in the race, I'm behind Kurt Ahrens, a stone from his wheel came through my goal, 
which were World War II surplus, of course. And I stopped, flung the goggles off, then drove slowly around four miles or so back to the pits. Gary said, what's the matter, what's the matter? I said, rrr, rrr. He says, okay, okay, wear your spare goggles. I have no spare goggles. So he gives me Jackie Inks' green sun goggles, which were all right in the sun. They weren't too great in the, under the trees. So I drive like a man possessed. And I finish fourth, and I'm gaining two seconds a lap on the leaders. And I set a new lap record. But I get into the sport hotel, I sit on my bed, and I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? Yeah, what am I doing? So we go down to dinner, forget he disappears, he comes back. Brian, I speak with Signor Ferrari. For the rest of the year, you drive a Formula Dui, and in September at Monza, Formula Uno. And I said, no, thank you. He said, what do you mean, no, thank you? I said, if I drive for Ferrari, I'll be dead by the end of the year. <laughs> well, that was that story. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Peter Winter. Another one, yes, just hang on just one moment. That was, the, that was the race of your life in autosport, I think, wasn't it? The, it was. Such life in 68, yes. yeah. Brian, you mentioned um, racing at Spa in 1970. A friend of mine drove a 2 litre Lola in the same race, and uh, as you said, Rodriguez lapped at 160 in practice. My friend's car couldn't do 160 flat out. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how difficult was it, the difference in speed with cars like that? It was a tremendous, of course, difference in speed in those days between cars like the 917 and the Ferrari 512 and the slower cars. I mean, at Daytona, for instance, in 1970, it's a four-mile track. We were lapping the tail-enders on the fourth lap. So we gained four miles in, you know, seven minutes or something like that. So the Daytona race was actually very difficult and much more difficult than Le Mans because they started 70 cars on a four-mile track. Le Mans starts, what, 55 on an eight-mile track. So it's half the number of cars per mile. And so you were overtaking absolutely all the time, non-stop, at tremendous speeds, 60, 70 miles an hour faster than the cars you were uh, overtaking. But someone like Spa, where the, where the speed was so high all of the time, I mean, you're really threading the needle, aren't you, when you're passing slower cars? But Spa, I mean, one of the, one of the things at Spa was that because the corner, these corners were so fast, you had to calculate where you were going to catch a slower car. Because the worst thing that you could do, which is what really destroyed the Ferrari effort when John Surtees was driving with Jackie Hicks in the 1970 race, uh, is that you've got to judge it so that you lose as little speed as possible. So let's say you're coming into the Bastard Cape and in the distance you see a slower car. You have to de decide whether you're going to catch it before or after the king. And you have to lift a, a long way off. You know, so you lose as little speed as possible. You've got to try and keep the momentum going. We've got another question over here, Brian. Yeah, good evening. Thank you very much for the talk. Um, you talked about learning circuits and learning corners. I'm assuming that you never learned target drawing. And therefore, you probably never had an experience of a perfect lap of target drawing. Does that make your victories for target more or less satisfying than a short circuit victory? The target was obviously extremely difficult. I mean, I know that. Nino Vaccarello, who lives there, and knows every inch. And Vic Alford claimed he knew it. He said, I've got a photographic memory, and I know every inch. 
It didn't explain why he crashed in the Alfa Romeo in 1971. Before my accident, I took a, a uh, video, not a filmmaker around, carrying this huge, heavy camera, and I was in a 914.6 Porsche rally car, and I came whistling down to this corner, and uh, I said, the two corners look identical, they both have a building on the apex, and uh, one is fast and one is slow. This is the fast one. <laughs> well, I'd actually run into my emergency mode in, in where I had sort of flung the car sideways, you know, and, and I was getting ready for, I was waiting for the, for the crash, and somehow it came straight. Another question, maybe? Oh, here we go. Starting to get brave now. Of all your contemporaries, who do you have the most admiration for and why? Can you repeat? Yeah, of all your contemporaries, who do you have the most admiration for and why? In the other drivers? Yeah. Well, probably Jimmy Clark, who I you know, knew in Formula 2, and he, he uh, taught me two very invaluable things. The, the art of the food fight, when I saw him flick a pat of butter across the restaurant, and landed on the nose of an attractive young lady, which started the, uh, the whole thing. And I asked him his, uh, if he did any exercise, and I followed his advice all my life. And this is 1967. I said, but Jimmy, do you exercise? He said, oh, hi, Brian. He said, I exercise every day. I said, do you really? He said, yes. He said, I lift my leg to get into bed at night. <laughs> That's all I've ever done. <laughs> If it was good enough for Jimmy, it's good enough for me. Another question here. Brian, I've read uh, reports that the 79 Le Mans effort by Porsche was a bit last minute, but not, not the usual standard preparation. Uh, did you see any sign of that? A Porsche effort at the Mine 79 was a bit last minute. Did you see yeah. signs of that? Not really, because I mean, Porsche are always so good you know, at everything that they, that they do. And so I didn't really see, but also I wasn't looking for it either. Uh, the only thing that did happen was that we did the Silverstone 6R race in the 936, and I was co-driving with Jochen Mass, and it was towards the end of my stint, and I come whistling down to club, you know, and the brakes weren't feeling too good. And I thought, ha, I've got about three or four laps to go. I thought, if I pit now, Jochen won't be ready, and I'll have to do another stint, so I kept going. Well, the brakes really went. And now, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, so I'm going 180 miles an hour, and not slowing down. And in those days, they had catch fencing at Silverstone. And I, again, I tried to spin it as usual. You know, I came off the brakes on, and the tail hit a, a, hit a post. You know, one of the catch fencing posts, it knocked me straight. So I came into the pits with the rear bed disarranged, and they changed the rear body and changed the brake pads. And Jochen went out, we were still in the lead. <laughs> anyway, on the end of that lap, as he came into Woodcote, he had an enormous accident. The new rear body came off, it hadn't been fastened properly, and the car was uh, badly damaged. He took down all the catch fencing, didn't yes. he? Yes, all the way around. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so you remember the picture. Um, uh, one final question if there is anyone out there that would like to ask someone? Okay. Oh, one here, Steve. Second row. I wondered whether you'd ask a question. Brian, you had a, a stint 
stellar sports racing career, which we greatly enjoyed hearing about. Did you have any other aspirations in Formula One that you could turn down before you moved to uh, the US? You talked about Colin Chapman briefly earlier on. Were there any other Formula One offers out there? Well, I actually drove a couple of races for Frank Williams, you know, after Piers Courage died. Zandvoort, um, I drove the car in the next race, the British Grand Prix, and very early in practice, I think I'd only done one session, they brought me in and they found something, I think, that had broken probably on Piers's car. They never said what, nothing, I'd never heard anything mentioned, but for sure that was, and they just withdrew the car. And I drove for Shadow in three races in 1974, I drove for McLaren in 72, but I made some huge errors. Um, I had some good races, I finished second to Emerson, Fittipaldi in the Rothmans, 50,000 at Brands Hatch. And I finished fifth at Monaco in pouring rain. And it was the second Goodyear tyre finisher behind Jackie Stewart. But I'd had a puncture and I'd had to pit and change a tyre. So that was a good race. But I made a mistake at the Nürburgring. I thought I'd worn the tyres up going around the loop behind the pit. And so and I knew the Nürburgring very well and I, I liked it a lot. And I gave it you know, a lot of power coming out of the north curve there was to start my first flying lap. The car went sideways, I hadn't worn the tyres enough, and hit the barrier, and it was repaired, it was okay. But in the race, I just drove without any spirit. You know, I just drove around, I finished fifth. I think. <laughs> and then at the French Grand Prix, <laughs> the hotel, was, it had a very old hotel with one of those birdcage lifts. You could see everybody right at the top. And we're going down on Saturday evening before the race, and the mechanics were all in the lift, and they wouldn't let me in. And they said, bet you can't beat us down. So a challenge is a challenge. So I go hurtling down the stairs, you know. And I got about five steps from the bottom, and I tripped up. And I went A over T and wrecked my right ankle. I had to cut my racing boot to get it on. And I raced, I did the race, you know, like that. And then, at Brands Hatch in a non-championship race, you know, of course, there's no matter. We were being paid 500 pounds or something for driving and uh, there was no money, and then, anyway, it wasn't an excuse not to get my racing boots sold and healed, but I hadn't, and there was a hole in the sole of my right foot, and I went rushing into one of the corners round the back of Dingle Dell or somewhere, and the throttle got stuck in the hole in my boot. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a comedy act, it was. So, then with the shadow in 74, what happened with Don Nichols, who owned European Shadow, he asked if I'd drive the spare car in the US Grand Prix at Watkins Glen, which I did. And I, I well out-qualified the two regular drivers, Jackie Oliver and George Falmer. And he asked if I'd do Formula One for 1974. But I'd just done my first year with Jim Hall and Carlos in Formula 5000. And I thought that you know, I'd be, rather be winning races or finishing in the first three in America than in the middle of the field in Formula One. And so I turned it down. And the driver who took my place in the shadow team was Peter Revson, who was killed practicing for the South African Grand Prix. And just after he was killed, Carl Haas rang and he said, there's no Formula 5000 series, there's no money, nothing. And Don Nichols rang two days later and said, would you reconsider? And I didn't have a drive. So I did the Spanish Grand Prix, the Belgian Grand Prix, and Monaco. And at Monaco, on Sunday morning, race morning, urgent call from America, Carl Haas. Series is back on again. So I told Don Nichols I'm going back to 5,000. And that was my last four wheel one race. Uh, one last question. I think there's some other back here. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, <coughs> well, 
favourite co-driver and why? I think probably that Jackie X, uh, is, I mean, he's eight years, at least eight years younger than I, but he was so smart and so easy on the car that I think he was probably the, the best. Um, Siffert was fantastic in terms of speed and when they were doing Le Mans starts, he was a brilliant Le Mans starter. Um, but he, he only really had one speed, you know, flat out. And it cost us uh, Le Mans, I think, in 1970. But Jackie, I, mean, I was very lucky during my long distance career to have some great, great co-drivers. David Leslie with Aston Martin was unfortunately faster than I was. <laughs> but I was slightly more economical. And in Group C at that time, the economy was part of the deal, wasn't it? And I, I think I was, well, at least, I think Richard told me I was slightly, he was trying to make me feel a bit better because I was slow. <laughs> so, Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary well, Brian Redman. Yes, I did. Brilliant. What did he say? I said, well, 1968, uh, lunchtime, I went to the dining room in Maranello, and about 40 managers, da -da -da -da. And he's at the far end of the room. The room was actually about this size, and he's sort of over there at the far end. And I came in at the front door, and he stood up, and he was actually very tall. I don't know his actual height, but he was, he was tall. And he came walking towards me, and behind him on one side was Ingenieri Foghieri, Mauro Foghieri, and on the other side, Giacomo uh, Calieri. And they come down to me and they stop like this, and I look up and I'm wondering, you know, what to do. And I start to raise my hand to shake hands, but before I could do that, he shoots out his right hand like this, and he gets hold of my cheek here and shakes me. I do. <laughs> and then he says the only two words he ever spoke to me. Nice boy. Brian, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, like everyone else here, it has been a pleasure to listen to you tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much.